you are at Founders FAQ, answers to all the possible questions of a founder. Do what you're great at, what you love to do. Do what made this company great to start with, which was create something awesome that hasn't existed before. I don't see any shame in that, but I think that's where I see the struggle is if there's that lack of self-awareness and somebody's trying to extend into that, you know, more structural CEO role and is not making the leap. Welcome to Founders of EQ. Today, my guest is Jennifer LeBlanc, is the best-selling author of Launching for Revenue and Changing Ties. She is the founder of Changing Ties Movement, which was developed out of the pressing need for a collaborative community focused on the unique experiences of women founders, entrepreneurs, and investors. Jennifer is known as a high-energy and inspiring keynote speaker and workshop facilitator for startup accelerators and corporate teams. In her private coaching work, Jennifer works with female founders, entrepreneurs, and change agents to provide them with the tools and connections they need to succeed. Jennifer is also the founder and CEO of ThinkResult, which was ranked as the 10th fastest-growing private company in Silicon Valley in 2017 and has become recognized as one of the top Silicon Valley agencies each year since 2013. Hi Jen, welcome to Founders of AQ. You're leading the Change Ties movement where they could connect, collaborate and co-create community designed by women for women. And you have tons of experiences in there. So do you think for female founders, do they have an advantage while they are scaling their companies? So actually, I think I, I totally think that right now there is a huge emphasis, which is something actually when I was first writing, I started writing Changing Tides in 2017. And I remember I did a keynote at the Google Female Founder Summit in early 2018. And at that point, I said, you know, strap up, ladies, because we're about to have an explosion of female founders. At that point, there were just a handful of sort of um, high-profile female founders. And I said, I think in the next you know, two, three, five years, we're going to see an explosion from the conversations I'm hearing from VCs and angels and talking to founders you know, on the ground in Silicon Valley. An absolute explosion of female founders and those you know, unicorn uh, companies. And that has started to happen. And, and there are so many funds now that are focused on whether it's female founders or underrepresented founders in some format. Because really, once we sort of break it open, you know, in the intersectionality world, we break everything open, right? So I think it's a great time to be a female founder. It's a great time to be an underrepresented founder because there's a lot of funds, opportunities, programs, support specifically for underrepresented founders. Yes, uh, I totally agree with you. And before scaling the company, founder should find a product market fit. And you have seen tons of startup cases in there. For female founders, do you think they're more digging into this to find the product market fit? What do you think about it? So you're absolutely right. That product market fit is really essential. And it's interesting because one of the chapters, I'm just actually going through the audiobooks and releasing that shortly. So I was listening for the 500th time to one of the chapters. And um, it was from Mukund Mohan, who was formerly the director of Microsoft Ventures. And I was an advisor there for several years. And he did some very interesting analysis of 
um, sort of the, how the genders broke out within the companies that had been through the Microsoft Ventures program while he was running it. And, you know, his, his thesis is that female founders in particular, they, they watch and listen to a much deeper extent than what he saw for the male founders. Their churn is lower. Uh, they have very strong uh, customer empathy. So they, they pretty much start every question with, well, customers tell us. Customers have said, and so I think that's actually an advantage for female founders is, you know, this is a generalization, obviously, but by and large, female founders, because of the way that women are trained, we are very attuned to the customer needs and the customer problems. So that product market fit tends to be a lot tighter with female founders, which I think is one of the reasons why typically female founded or mixed founded teams tend to perform better because they have that early product market fit and listen very closely to what their customers need and want. Yes, I get it. And uh, when those companies are getting scale, they will they will do price runs and uh, they will get new investors come to the stage and some are come to the board. And the board is a pretty top-notch team of a founder. So how should founders leverage and manage their board effectively? What would we say about this? So I think you know your board relations are critical, right? These are the early investors in your company. Um, they often have, hopefully, significant experience in your space and can be a really important part of your success when they are leveraged properly. And I think the same, the same sort of skills that we see female founders using with customers can be used with those board members, right? It's a relationship. You don't want to go to a board meeting and surprise your board members, right? There's the socializing that you do before a board meeting, keeping your board members informed and keeping your investors informed. And the communication and the ongoing connection is really important to a successful board relationship. A, to make sure that they're always informed and B, to say, hey, I'm struggling with XYZ. Do you have any resources or suggestions, right? To really get the value because a great a great investor is giving you money and something else so leveraging those investors so that you are getting that something else whatever expertise it is that they have from them i think is a great thing multiplying your you know your own sort of effectiveness so should they also know the investor before raising the round? And for female funders, how do they grow the VC radius before raising the round? Absolutely. And that is actually, that's another piece of research that came out of the book um, from Suzanne Fletcher, who was leading the Stardex fund at the time. And she said, looking at her female founders and her male founders, if she asked you know, equivalently experienced male founder and a female founder, how many VCs and angels, lawyers, accountants, you know, ecosystem partners do you know? She would get a significantly higher number from the male founders than from the female founders. So one of her tactical and practical tips is, which we talk about all the time in junior times, is grow your investor VC radius. So increase the number of investors that you know, and I'm always counseling my female founders and I'm bringing in investors all the time to be part of conversations with them. But you need to get to know those investors well before you go to them for money. Mm -hmm. They need to know who you are, what you're trying to do, get to know you, because especially in the early stages, that investor is investing in the founder, the founder, the idea, 
the founders of Blade Execute, it is very much a personality-based decision in the early stages. So really important that those founders allow those investors to get to know who they are. So that then when they need money, they're like, oh yeah, I know what she's doing. And that's been really interesting. And I've been watching her progress and sure, you know, they, they feel more comfortable with that investment. Um, so that is something that is really, really important. Something we talk a lot about because that is a, a place where there's a gap between the typical female founder and the typical male founder have a very different universe of connections. And do you think it's a challenge to make it happen because founder has many tasks on products, sales, marketing, and so on? So I think that's a problem no matter what your gender. How do you balance the running your company with raising the funds to run your company? And one of the particular challenges for women is you know, women, I think it's now 2.2% of VC funding goes to women. It's a ridiculous amount. Um, and so quite honestly, I'm often counseling my female founders to try to avoid VC funding and try to do it some other way because it takes an exorbitant amount of time for a female founder or any underrepresented founder to get VC funds compared to a white, cis, heterogeneous, heterosexual male. Um, and so it's even worse if you're underrepresented founder in terms of that trade-off of do I spend time you know, developing the company, running the company, or I spend time in working with investors. And, you know, for example, um, I know a founder who literally hired a COO to run the company so that she could spend her time full-time working with investors and pitching investors because it was, it was just too difficult for her to be able to do both um, because it takes so much time. So I think that's a fair question for any founder. How do you balance that? But it's an even more uneven um, you know, decision-making process if you're an underrepresented founder because the amount of time that you're going to spend pitching is way more than you know what a, a white you know cis male will be doing. Especially for underrepresented founders, maybe immigrant founders or first-time founders, they're they're all stuck with that, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is true for you know black, brown, Asian immigrants, first-time founders, solo founders, female founders. There's a whole long list of you know what would be underrepresented founders because there is a very strong bias towards you know white males who've dropped out of Harvard or MIT. And do you think they should create their own brand or presence to make their business successful? That is exactly what we are doing. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that concept actually also came out of the book, Changing Tides, from Terry Hansen Mead, who is an angel investor. And uh, she talked about you know, creating a mesh network of investors, because I think this has, has to happen on both sides, right? There's things that founders need to do, given the current environment, female you know, founders. There's also a lot of work to do on the investment side. And so I work with investors as well to really think about how that can make their investing more inclusive and frankly, make more money doing that. But I think also that will probably take some time. So, you know, as Terry mentioned in the book about the mesh network of investors, of like-minded investors who want to invest in female founders and who want to make more money, because if you invest in female founders, you will, and underrepresented founders, you will make more money. This is a very simple thing. And so, um, I love that idea. And so that is part of what we're trying to do with Changing Tides is create that female economy, essentially. And I do talk about that during our Changing Tides Circles, which is our signature program. It's sort of a mastermind smashed up with an incubator. 
small groups of female founders. We get together once a month and go through curriculum based on the research from changing tides. But I talk a lot about, you know, if you need a graphic designer and we have one in this group, call her. If you need a lawyer and we have one in this group, call her. So, you know, making sure that we are taking the power that we have in terms of the decisions, like right now we're going through some purchasing decisions for an event we have coming up in November. And I've instructed my team, I'm like, I want those products to be female founded. And if you can make it work and you can find them, make it, make it a woman of color. Um, you know, we have the economic power to make these decisions to support the things we want to see in the world. And I'm, believe me, everybody hears this from me all the time. Use your power, your economic power to make the change you want to see. Absolutely. Yes, it's, it's pretty critical. And while they're scaling their companies, what are the top challenges they face? So typically the biggest challenge I see at that phase is the founder-CEO conflict. So typically those of us who like to start things don't necessarily like to run things. Um, and so that transition, and some, some people can do this, right? They're comfortable with the you know scaling and they, they grow and they extend until their company gets larger and that's fantastic. But there are a lot of folks who like when it gets to be like someone said to me, if it's more than 30 people and I can't gather around the table, I don't want to be involved. So there's a lot of folks that just don't want to do that sort of larger processes and procedures type function as a CEO. Fine, don't do that. <laughs> you know, get someone in to do that. Go back to doing the innovating and creating that you'd like to do. If you want to scale with a company, that's great. But I sometimes see a lot of struggle in that Series A, Series B, sometimes Series D um, phase where the founder is really, <clears throat> excuse me, is not comfortable with this sort of new organization that they've created, and they're struggling with letting go of that. That's the biggest thing that I typically see. And how do they solve it? I mean, there's only two options. Either you as a CEO founder decide that you are going to, you know, for example, this one founder I told you about, she decided that she wanted to not do the day-to-day operations because she knew that she needed to be the face of the company with investors. So she went out and that was her focus, right? The other thing is I've seen founders go back to becoming CTOs or, you know, more technical roles where they can, go and keep recreating and innovating, which is what they like to do. So either that's self-directed or it's not. I've been involved in those startups as well, you know, where the board is like, yes, and here's what's going to happen. So it's usually pretty obvious to the board that it's not working. And it's, I think people tend to take that personally and it's not. There is nothing shameful about being an entrepreneur and wanting to create and innovate. Nothing shameful about that. I think where it gets to be difficult is where that self-awareness is lacking. That's really what your strength is and what you prefer to do. So then go do that and let someone else be the CEO who is comfortable with processes and procedures and check marks and lists and all that stuff that you hate. Why do it? Why do it? Do what you're great at, what you love to do. Do what made this company great to start with, which was create something awesome that hasn't existed before. I don't see any shame in that. But I think that's where I see the struggle is if there's that lack of self-awareness and somebody's trying to extend into that, you know, more structural CEO role and is not making the leap. 
Yes, and it's also the same for early team members, right? Because uh, yeah. the founder hire people in the first place for most of the generalists. But for later stages, you need more specialists. And uh, the early team members can be a uh, trouble at some point. Do you think, do you agree with that? Yes, that is very true. And I actually talk about that in my other book, Launching for Revenue, about the team structure, because early on, that team might have been great, but then as the team grows and the company grows, that team needs to change roles and you may not have the right people in the right roles anymore because those roles have very much changed with the growth of the company and that person's skills may not be a match anymore for the title they're actually holding, right? Because it's just changed so much. So as a CEO, you have to be very aware of that, of, you know, this person might've been great when there were six of us, but now that there's 600 of us, that may not be the best fit for them anymore. And that's tough because especially when it's, you know, a group of friends who built this company together, but you know, that's, that's why they pay the CEOs, the big bucks, right? Very funny. But you know, that is essentially the, the job of the CEO is to make the best decisions for the company, even if an individual might be you know, not happy about that decision. And on the scaling part, especially the culture is pretty important. Do you think the founder defines the culture as a person? or the culture is defined by the people you hired. What do you think about it? That's, I think that is very much an individual situation. I think, you know, if you look at Apple, for example, you know, that was very much a founder personality cult, right? And I think there are examples where it may have started out that way. In my mind, some of the best examples, they, they morph into something where the whole company can take on that culture and help build that culture. But that is also much harder. It is much easier to be a founder personality driven culture, really from a logistical perspective, than it is to create a bottoms up company culture experience. Um, kind of an old example, but you know, ages ago, I was part of PeopleSoft and in a sense it was created by the founder, but that it was kind of like, <laughs> being part of a cult, you know, it was very much a bottoms up experience of what, who is PeopleSoft? Who are we? How do we behave in the world? Everyone understood what that was. Um, and I think that was a great example for me early on in my career of a bottoms up culture that permeated everything that we did. It was great. It was a great example. It was a great experience to be part of that. Um, but it started with the founder, but became a much bigger than the founder culture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I get it. And I'm, I'm getting finalized some some couple of questions. Um, my other question is, what are your topics for a founder, like uh, top skills of a founder to survive in this path, to go on the best possible path of a startup and make it successful? What are your topics? Probably, you know, you picked this up, but I mean, I think self-awareness is really important. Again, I keep referencing it, but there's just so many great examples from the contributors at Changing Tides. But Robin Bohr did a chapter on self-care for, for founders, and it's for female founders, but it's true for any founder. I think your job is to bring your the very best version of yourself to work every day, which is hard, right? We just had July 4th here, you know, there were fireworks, my dog is up all night, I've had three and a half hours sleep. I'm not my best version, you know, after that. But that is your job is to bring the most, you know, rested, clear headed, 
calm, centered, focused self to work. I mean, I had three emergencies before I talked to you this morning. So if you're not in your best place, it's going to be hard to deal with the quote unquote emergencies, which I laugh about in marketing, but you know, my team considers them emergencies, you know, that came up this morning. You have to be the very, very best version of you. So I think self-awareness and self-care are critical. And there's a lot of, you know, everyone's crushing it. They're crushing it. And a lot of this sort of killer culture in Silicon Valley in particular. And I don't think it's useful for companies. I don't think it's useful for the individuals. Um, you know, there's some very dark statistics about founder and depression and suicide. So I think that is really important. That is like the number one thing is you have to, you know, the concept of put your oxygen mask on before helping others, right? And your job as CEO is to help your customers, your team, your partners, your industry. You can't do that if you're operating a 10% function. So I think that's really important. And then I'm also a huge fan of you know, customer empathy and customer connection, because I think when you listen carefully, I'm not saying customers always know what they want. I mean, if we'd ask customers, do you want to get into a metal bird and put your seatbelt on and go, you know, 3000 miles an hour, we would have said, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, we get in planes all the time now, right? So I think you have to have some vision, but I think understanding your customers' pains helps you to create new visions, new options for them. So really understanding what their experience is like, I think is really important and you just can't go wrong, but that's where you're starting. Great. And my last question is about getting big decisions like acquisition or creating a startup. What do you recommend for founders who are close to those kind of decisions? Yeah, again, that is a very personal and individual situation. Um, and I will tell you that because specifically for female founders, because of the amount and any underrepresented founder, really, because of the structural issues that surround those founders as they're sort of navigating through their experience, the difficulty raising funding, the questioning of their actual capacity and, and you know, intelligence, you know, all of the challenges that an underrepresented founder faces are much, much bigger than a more typical um, founder. And so they hit that wall more often and harder. So I think it's really important that you have a really good community around you, whether that's your board, it's your family, it's a founder community of some sort, somewhere where you can a coach. I don't care what it is, but you have somewhere that you can go and say, wow, okay, so this just happened and I'm really concerned and I'm thinking I want to you know, quit or you know, I haven't had this offer. You know, I talked to a founder last week who had three different offers for her company, um, two of which were lowballed. And she said, you know, no, she wasn't comfortable with it. She ended up getting an offer a few weeks later that was 10 times those first two. So I think knowing what you need and having a community or a support system in some way that helps you think about this, because nobody is perfect. Nobody can have all the answers. No matter how good you are as a founder, you need to have some kind of a sounding board that you can trust, whether it's for an IPO, it's for an exit, it's for, I'm going to shut it down because this is the third time my business has been shut down because of COVID. Whatever the decision is, these are big decisions and don't go it alone. 
Yes, I totally agree. Having coach, advisors, mentors from all different verticals, such as sales, product, finance, legal, VC side, is very important to get your toes while you're getting a decision. Absolutely, because each one of those folks may have a different perspective on that you may not have seen. Right. I often have that when I go to you know my sounding boards. I'm like, wow, I did not think about that. That is an interesting way of looking at it because I don't look at it from how I look at it. So I'm, you know, personally, I'm a big, you know, I, I definitely drink the medicine. I'm a big believer in any major decision I take to, you know, my shadow cabinet of, of supporters and experts and say, so what do you think about this? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then I make a decision. Yes, this, this is important because as a founder, you need to ask yourself to enlighten your your environment and to run the business successfully. But there are some questions you may never ask or you don't think you're getting the ask, but those people can ask those questions to you and you can be enlightened by those questions. Mm-hmm. It's pretty important yeah, for especially self-awareness. Exactly. You know, it's fine to be able to ask yourself questions, but there's questions that you don't even know to ask. So you're never going to access those because you don't even know what you should be asking. And that's where those advisors, whether it's your board or, you know, shadow cabinet or family, you know, founder group, whatever it is, can help you see things that, that you just literally don't even see. Great. Jennifer, these are all my questions. It was really fun to having a chat with you. And I recommend all the female founders to reach out to you. And again, thank for coming to Founders of AQ. Love it. That was fun. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. By the way, Founders FAQ is in pre-order and it covers the answers to all the possible questions of a founder in a startup journey. Whether revealing life-saving principles for the startup survival path, building A-plus themes, creating an evolving machine, setting up a need culture, or interpreting the true path for the fundraising. You can pre-order it from foundersfq.com and you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook.